World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm your host, John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. America's immigration system has long been a mess. But a federal judge has blocked the Biden administration from ending a Trump-era policy that effectively closed the border. What comes next is unclear. And just about everywhere that's photogenic these days must serve as a backdrop for the selfies of social media types. In China, that increasingly includes the playful and picturesque shelves of bookshops. But first... European leaders have at last agreed an embargo on the majority of Russian oil imports to take effect by the end of the year. It's a long-awaited move to increase pressure on Russia and to constrain its war in Ukraine. I'm very glad that the leaders were able to agree in principle on the sanctions package. Kremlin officials will eventually feel an increased squeeze from the West. But right now, Russian forces in Ukraine's east are having some success. Since regrouping in the eastern Donbass region, they've captured multiple villages and have focused efforts on the strategically significant city of Severodonetsk. But the Ukrainians are still mounting a stiff resistance. What we've seen in the last 10, 15 days is intense fighting on the edge of Luhansk province. And in particular, we've seen the Russian army, which in many ways has struggled to advance and to really make territorial gains in this conflict, threatening quite a substantial pocket of Ukrainian troops in a town called Severodonetsk. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. We are looking at a pretty tough situation for Ukrainian forces now. There's still a lot of Donbass that's in Ukrainian hands, but what we've seen is some pretty substantial tactical successes for the Russians in this very eastern part of the front lines. What you're saying here seems to suggest, at least in this phase, that Russia is having a lot more success in this more focused campaign than it did in the more general one. Undoubtedly so. Look, the Russian army basically came to a halt and was defeated in northern Ukraine. And even in Donbass, even once it focused on the east of the country, it was making very slow gains. We were talking one, two kilometers a day. So what we have seen around Severodonetsk, around Liman, is a pretty important breakthrough for the Russians. And it's very bad news for the Ukrainians because there are quite a lot of Ukrainian forces, along with their equipment, potentially trapped in this pocket. So if these are captured, if these are destroyed, killed, this would be a big blow to the Ukrainians. It would be a psychological blow in a war that has been so much about tactical gains and tactical losses. But it has to be said 
that this isn't the end of the story for the Russians. We don't know what sort of mauling they have taken in the process of making these advances, right? Their casualties have been extremely heavy by all accounts. We saw a British defense intelligence assessment on Monday that said there had been devastating losses among middle and junior ranking officers. And Jason, you've heard me talk on the show a lot about battalion tactical groups, these fighting formations of Russian forces. I would once have told you that these are perhaps 800, 900 people in size. Now they're substantially depleted by Ukrainian resistance. We're talking far smaller numbers of forces. Nevertheless, as you say, they've been making gains. What happens if Russian troops end up securing Severodonetsk? The big question for me is, okay, so the Russians might be able to capture Severodonetsk. They might be able to make these gains. What next? Do they have the forces then to push further west? Because you then run into these big urban areas like Kramatorsk, Slovyansk. These are sizable cities. These are well-defended positions that have been fought over and fought around for eight years with trenches. To me, the Russian army is not just going to be able to blitzkrieg west once it takes these places and sweep through the rest of Donbass. I think that this is very much not the end of the story. And Shishan, given the way things are now, how do you see this playing out? What does the next phase again look like? Well, the difference is now probably going to be made by the weapons flowing into Ukraine from the West. We've seen evidence, for example, that French Caesar artillery systems are coming in. These are self-propelled artillery systems, which means you can fire them and then very quickly move so that the Russians can't hit you back. The big issue for the coming days is whether America is going to send something called multiple launch rocket systems. And these are rockets that can fire in large amounts over longer ranges. These are very potent systems. They can strike Russian artillery from further away than the Russian guns can hit them. And so I think this could make a substantial difference on the battlefield. The frustration among Ukrainians that I'm hearing is that these weapons are just not coming in quickly enough in sufficient numbers at this vital stage of the fight. We've talked endlessly about the potential for a war of attrition. Is that question of Western weaponry and and the speed with which it comes, is that what's going to determine how this plays out? Is that the thing that's going to make the difference here? I think it's a really vital factor here. Russia can define victory how it wants, but its ability to do so is constrained by what it can get on the battlefield. There's a lot of Donetsk province that is still in Ukrainian hands. There's a lot of urban areas it's going to struggle to take. If Russia, on the other hand, breaks through and has sudden successes, there are certainly some voices in Russia who think it has bigger ambitions, that it should make another attempt on Kiev, that it should try and push west and try to seize the port city of Odessa again. So all of these things really depend on how the fighting goes. And how the fighting goes depends on how that war of attrition goes. Does the Russian army have anything left in the tank once it has mounted this latest offensive around Severodonetsk, or is it exhausted? And I think the sense is that the longer that Ukraine can keep these Russian forces at bay, the more they can grind them down, the more likely it is that at some stage they'll be able to mount a counteroffensive pushing the Russians back. Not necessarily back all the way to the lines of February 23rd, but certainly denying them some of the territory they've captured. And so for the Ukrainians, that's what it's about, I think, exhausting the Russians, putting them on their knees, and then striking back to put yourself in a position for a much more favorable political settlement than the sort you would get if you signed one right now at this stage in the conflict. 
And what about the odds of a political settlement? What do you think it would take for some kind of diplomatic solution to emerge here? What I think it'll require is for each side to get the measure of the other's resolve. If Europe's coalition, the Western coalition, is hanging together in three, four months' time and rockets are flowing into Ukraine and more ammunition is flooding in, and the Ukrainian armed forces continue to have good morale, that they're conducting counterattacks, as they have done this week, for example, in the southern Kherson province, and they're continually tritting these Russian forces. At some stage, maybe that will disabuse the Kremlin of the idea that it can just outweigh the West, that it can exhaust the West diplomatically and politically, and that it can remain militarily solvent longer than the West can remain unified. But I think especially with these Russian gains this week, it's going to take a lot longer to persuade the Kremlin of something like that. Shashank, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Attempts to cross the border from Mexico into the United States have been surging. Last month, people were recorded trying to make the trip some 234,000 times, the highest number in more than 22 years. Others continued to wait to apply for asylum in America. We've been here in Tijuana for almost a year, says one woman. It's very difficult. There's a lot of danger. Those migrants have been kept in Mexico by a Trump-era policy colloquially known as Title 42. It effectively closed the border, ostensibly for public health reasons during COVID. It allows Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, to rapidly expel people instead of putting them through long deportation proceedings. The Biden administration had hoped to lift it this month until a legal challenge to that plan was upheld. When it was announced the policy would stay in place for now, people massed at the U.S.-Mexico border to protest, chanting, we are migrants, we are not criminals. For now, though, the border remains shut, and the future, both for migrants waiting to enter and for American immigration policy, uncertain. It's really a flawed policy, and I think even advocates for retaining Title 42 understand its limitations. Alexandra Suich Bass is The Economist's senior correspondent for politics, society, and technology. The big picture is that Title 42 has slowed people from coming at first. In the early spring of 2020, it really acted as a deterrent because people knew they had no chance of getting across America's border. But ultimately, it's made border management less predictable and given people the hope of getting in. And many believe that that has fueled people's willingness to make the trek and is fueling some of the record numbers that we've seen uh, under Title 42 of migrants coming to America's border. And Alexandra, why is that? Why has it made border management less predictable? 
that's because the measures contributed to such wildly different outcomes at the border, depending on a migrant's nationality. So Mexico accepts back under Title 42 Mexicans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, and Salvadorans, but not people from most other countries. And without the capacity to send a lot of these migrants home, Border Patrol often releases them into America. And so people hear about those outcomes and think that they have a fairly good chance of getting across. Most critically, under Title 42, migrants don't face charges for repeated entry, as they would if they were processed under normal immigration law. And this encourages repeated attempts to cross the border. Recidivism surged from 11% in 2018 to 27% in 2021. And that's inflating the number of apprehensions that Border Patrol reports. Before we get into the legal case over Title 42, I'd like to pick up on something you just said, which is that Mexico will accept back Mexicans and people from three Central American countries, but usually not people from anywhere else. And I think the perception most people have of the southern border of the United States is that it is mostly Mexicans and Central Americans trying to get across. Is that perception outdated? Is it a much more international crowd of people gathering at the border these days? Your question is key to understanding the border. Decades ago, this was only a Mexican phenomenon of people, mainly single men, coming across for work. We are seeing a tremendous amount of diversity. First of all, we're seeing a lot of family units come, but then we're seeing people come from a huge number of countries and in larger numbers that have really increased just in a couple of years. So to give you an example, in the first seven months of CBP's fiscal year in 2022, there have been 52,000 Colombians stopped at the border, and that compares to just 401 in 2019. There have been 6,700 Turks up from a mere 57 in 2019. And of course, we've seen a lot of Ukrainians, uh, Venezuelans, others, Nicaraguans, Cubans come. And so the diversity of nationalities has really complicated the job of people at the border and sending people home. It's much more complicated to send people home to Haiti and Venezuela, for example. That that's why you're seeing such a large number of people and diversity of people being released into America. And you mentioned advocates of Title 42. Give us a sense of, of, of who wants Title 42 left in place and who wants it lifted. The people who want to see it removed are immigration activists. And their opinion is that America has a legal obligation to people who are seeking asylum. And then you have a lot of people on the other side who say that this is not the time to end it because America is already so overwhelmed with the number of people coming. And we'll just see a much larger surge of migrants when Title 42 is revoked. We recognize that with the end of Title 42, there very well may be an increased surge in migration. Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, has said that in the wake of Title 42 being lifted, there could be as many as 18,000 people a day arriving at the southwest border. That is more than double the inflated number of daily arrivals in April and 11 times the daily average in 2014 through 2019. So the Biden administration wanted to lift Title 42 this month, but a federal judge ruled it has to stay in place. What's the likelihood now, do you think, of that policy being lifted? It seems likely that it will be in place in the near term. Congress could weigh in and the White House is going to appeal against the judge's ruling. Immigration policy experts say it's exceedingly unlikely that Title 42 is going to end before the midterm elections later this year. And one analyst I spoke to predicted that the Supreme Court could ultimately take up this issue next year. Really, the way to think about Title 42 is that it's become a shorthand for a debate about how broken America's immigration system is and what dire need America is of a revamp. 
And you've recently been down to the border. Tell us what things look like there. What's the mood like? So the situation on the border is deeply dysfunctional, and the mood is one of deep frustration. The morale among Border Patrol officers is the lowest it's been in at least 25 years. One border expert I spoke to estimated that less than 20% of the people trying to cross the border undetected are successfully stopped. And it's important not to forget that this is really a humanitarian issue. There were more than 650 people last year who died trying to enter America. That's the highest number on record. So the morale is really low among Border Patrol and also the people living in border communities. I spoke to Javier Villalobos, the mayor of McAllen, which is a town in southern Texas. If the numbers are correct, they're expecting 1.7 or more uh, people trying to to come in. So I know like last month throughout the the sectors, about 220,000 people were apprehended. I know that here in McAllen, we can assist in processing probably maybe about 1,500 a day. So depends what happens. We're, we're a little concerned about it. Mr. Villalobos is worried about Title 42 ending, but that doesn't mean he wants immigration to stop altogether. Look at what's going on right now in the United States. We need help. We need workers. We need people. We know that our birth rates are going down. We know that our population is aging. We know that we need people to help us work, fix the guest worker program. And that doesn't happen either. What he really wants as someone managing a town on the U.S.-Mexico border is better regulations at the federal level. And so what is happening at the federal level? What does the Biden administration want to do? And realistically, what can it get done? The Biden administration is about to introduce a long-discussed revamp of its asylum system so that people who are seeking asylum on the border can see a faster resolution of their asylum claims. Hopefully it will take months and not years. That's going to be rolled out later this month, although Texas has sued to stop the rollout. So we'll see what happens there. The big picture is that America's immigration system was designed for a time when most migrants were Mexican single adults trying to come to America for work. And now you have whole families and children arriving from around the world, many seeking asylum. And We haven't seen an expansion of legal pathways, including work programs, that would allow people to enter a queue to enter America. So you see the asylum system really becoming America's backdoor immigration policy. Some, including this newspaper, have argued that Mr. Biden and his senior advisors and members of Congress, too, should travel to the border to witness the mess. But others, like Mayor Villalobos, are wanting action, not a border tour. Well, the right way to me is uh, for the president, our president, our Senate and our Congress to take care of the immigration issues in Washington. We shouldn't be burdened here in the border. I would argue that he's not wrong. The fact that so many people want to rely on an obscure public health tool as a border management strategy just shows how urgent it is for Congress to get involved. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure. Today, we are in Chongqing's most Instagrammable bookstore. In China, some bookstores are becoming, well, tourist attractions. Some Harry Potter-looking stuff from what I've seen in the pictures, so let's head up. One in Chongqing has a picturesque network of dizzying staircases, scaling stories upon stories of bookshelves, 
The whole thing is straight out of an Escher woodcut. This is just the kind of thing to draw in not bookworms, but social media influencer types. And given how things are going for China's bricks-and-mortar bookshops, they'll take all the trade they can get. Booksellers in China are having a really hard time. Their share of book sales has declined from 85% to 20% over the 10 years leading up to 2020. Ted Plafker is The Economist's Beijing correspondent. Online sellers are a big issue, luring the bookworms out of the bookshops. And this, of course, is not unique to China, but the numbers in China are quite dramatic. According to the most recent data I've seen, 80% of Chinese bookshop owners have said their revenues were falling. But there are still a lot of independent bookstores who are still trying to make a go of it. In what sense? Well, China also has a lot of state-run bookstores who are better funded. The independents have a harder time, and they've done things that they've taken to serving coffee and tea and hosting events. And of course, this is the kind of thing that happens all over the world. But there are unique elements in China where the scope for civil society is so limited in terms of both the physical space and the political space for any kind of social or intellectual exchange. And bookstores in China have played a really outsized role in providing that. But as you say, the the economics of bookstores uh, are, are sort of crushing wherever you are in the world. How are the Chinese ones dealing with it? Well, one unique thing they've done is they've pinned their hopes on click-obsessed, narcissistic young people who maybe will help get them out of this bind. Bookshops have become a very popular destination for a type of Chinese internet celebrity influencer who are uh, known as Wang Hong. They are mainly women. There are some men, but most of them are women. They have a certain look and they seek attention on the internet. They want followers, clicks. That leads to sponsorship deals, modeling, contracts. So they post photos of themselves at attractive locations. This can be museums, amusement parks. And more recently, they're doing this in bookshops. So the bookshops are specifically trying to lure them in, what, in in the hope that they get some free advertisement, that they sell a book or two? Yeah, more and more, the bookshops are gussying themselves up to make them attractive to these Wang Hong, these internet celebrities. They provide backdrops, they have these mirrored halls and bizarre staircases, and sometimes they have views out onto iconic landmarks. And they are hoping that these pretty young people come in and attract their followers, bring attention to the bookshop, and... Once in a while, these people themselves might even buy a book or more commonly a a cup of coffee. Does that put the independent bookshops in some kind of uncomfortable competition with the state-run kind? They've always been an uncomfortable competition. They try to set themselves apart by being a bit edgy. That's not always welcome. The space for edginess in China is very limited. Censorship is severe. That leads to self-censorship. So they are finding ways here and there to set themselves apart. But making something sort of, uh, let's call it Instagram-friendly, isn't the same thing as being edgy in the way that censors might be thinking. No, you're right. Edgy in terms of censorship involves things like a bookstore in uh, Hangzhou, a southern city, that put together a themed display related to a huge scandal that captured everyone's attention. It was the case of a woman who was trafficked into marriage, and she was discovered chained by the neck uh, in a crude shack outside of the main house. So a bookstore in Hangzhou put together a display books about feminism and gender inequality, and they decorated it with a meter-long metal chain. But authorities decided that was a bit too on the nose, and that display had to come down after just a few days. Another example is a bookstore I visited in Beijing recently. There was a small display that gathered together works related to Russia, Ukraine, European politics. Again, the owner of the bookstore told me that this was uh, probably a bit too touchy and that he'd be taking it down in a day or two. 
So is that to say that that this this trend of, as you say, gussying up these bookshops won't last long because people will get tired of, of trying to walk that line? Or am I going to be thronged with these internet influencers if I visit a, a Chinese bookshop? No, well, no telling when fads end. And this is definitely a fad that bookshops are popular spots for the internet celebrities. But the censorship is a separate issue. And as for getting thronged when you go, it depends on when you go. On a recent weekday morning, I went to a bookstore, part of a chain called Zhongshuga, and there were people there browsing and buying, no internet celebrities. It seems they all come out on the weekends. And the shops don't mind. Uh, they're not there to buy books. But one of the clerks told me is it's probably good for them. The publicity can never hurt. And maybe even these people will buy at least a cup of coffee while they're there. Ted, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. It's always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.